0: Good morning, everybody. Oh, it's good to see you guys this morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and leave it up, and one will come to you, and you can get there. Acts chapter 6. We're in a series entitled Authentic Church, as many of you know, and we've been tracing the early church in the book of Acts from its explosive beginning. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down for the first time and indwelled them, Peter's amazing sermon, and the thousands who came to Christ, and then we followed that church through its honeymoon phase, where they just had nothing but love for each other, and they shared all things in common, and they were unified, and the people all marveled at them, and were drawn to them. And then we see in chapter 4, Satan's not just going to let them conquer the world like that, and so he throws some persecution at them. And they have to navigate that. And then he stirs up sin among them in the form of Ananias and Sapphira. And God deals with that. You may recall there was a double funeral in the last chapter. And then there was some more persecution. And now we are here in Acts chapter 6. And in verse 1 through 7 is our text today. Would you stand with me as we read this? Verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. And the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Let's pray, and then we will move on. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking to your word today. May we see in this early church, in Acts chapter 6, that they faced problems very similar to what we face today, but may we be inspired by how they dealt with them. And God, like them, may we seek unity. God, we don't want a unity that that is uh, as man defines it. We want a unity as you define it, a unity that is characterized by keeping uh, in common the focus of the Word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So we've followed this young church in Acts, and we have seen them endure persecution. They've encountered threats. Did that stop them? No, they grew. They encountered sin in their own ranks. Did that stop them? No, they grew. They were jailed. They were beaten. Did that stop them? No. They continued to grow, and now they are encountering a problem that is a direct result of their growth. And the very first thing that I want you to see in your notes today is this. When a church increases in number, it also increases in problems. Okay? Every pastor knows this. If you're a pastor of a small church, you can't wait for your church to grow, to get bigger because you've been in this small church and you're dealing with a bunch of nitpicky small church problems and if you could just have a big church, all that would be a thing of the past. And then the church grows and becomes large and then the pastor realizes he hasn't left all those problems behind. He's just multiplied them. And the reason is very simple. One word, people. Because churches have problems because they are made up of people okay more people more problems that's how that works and in your notes problems can cause the church to lose its focus it can cause us to lose we get distracted what is the focus of the church in acts chapter 6 Here's a little tip. When you're reading a text and you want to know what is the main thing here, what do I need to to think of as the central theme of this text? Look for words that repeat. Look for phrases that pop up uh, uh, multiple times in that text. And in this text, I see something referred to, alluded to, or named four times. It's the Word of God. In the very first verse, it says the disciples were increasing in number. Why were they increasing in number? Because the word of God was going out. In verse 2, the disciples say it is not good for us to neglect the word of God. In verse 4, it says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And in verse 7, it says, and the word of God kept on spreading. So the focus in Acts chapter 6 for the church is the word of God. It's the focus for those apostles, and it is the focus of Shelter Cove Community Church. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be on staff here. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't encourage you to attend here. But the focus of every church needs to be the Word of God. And this church in Acts 6 is facing a problem that is potentially going to cause them to lose their focus. And it's not persecution in this chapter. It's not sin in the vein of Ananias and Sapphira. It is a cultural problem. Do churches have an issue with culture in their church? Huh? Are we all just alike? Do we all think alike? Or do we come from different backgrounds and different cultures? We do, and we have to navigate that. Culture is an issue in the local church, and it's an issue in the church globally as well. I just came back from Spain We had a mission trip to Spain. I was able to take 17 uh, people from Shelter Cove there, mostly young adults. And we went to the beautiful Oceanside City of San Sebastian, Spain. And uh, there they have just a, a beautiful beach, and they've got a mountain next to the beach. And on that mountain is a statue of Jesus Christ. And my son pointed it out as soon as he saw it, because he did a report. I was able to take my 13-year-old son, Hayden, with me on this trip. And he had done a report in school on Rio de Janeiro, and they've got a statue of Jesus. And so he thought this was cool. And there in San Sebastian, on Sunday morning, we were able to join a local congregation. And they were celebrating their 10-year anniversary, and I was able to preach a little bit, and that was fun. And then after the service, we all went to the beach. Not to swim, but we were going to have a baptismal service which is just a rush. If you've ever seen somebody baptized, you've been baptized in the ocean, that's amazing. So we're marching across the beach to the water in mass. Just the whole church, all the mission teams that were there. And my son's excited about that statue, and he's kind of run on up ahead, and I'm kind of hanging in the back. I'm getting to know a guy from the Georgia team that's there on the ground with us. And as I'm walking along, talking, I, something dawns on me. I am in a different culture. Because this beach that I'm on ain't like the beaches back in California. This is a European beach. And if you want to get a tan on a European beach, you can get tan everywhere. Because it's kind of a clothing optional situation, know what I'm saying? And out of my peripheral view, I'm noticing there's, there's more skin showing on this beach than I've ever been accustomed to seeing. I've never been to a beach like this. Honest to goodness, and so my next thought is, "Where's my 13-year-old son?" <laughs> and so I move rapidly through this crowd. Hayden, Hayden, where are you, boy? And so my next thought is, if I lose my 13-year-old boy on a beach with a bunch of nude people, my wife is gonna kill me. <laughs> and I find him, and he's just kind of walking along, and I run up beside him. I <laughs> Hey son, how's it going? Hey, let's just keep walking straight ahead, son. Let's just keep our eyes straight ahead, and I kind of block his peripheral view, you know, and, and I say, now nah, you just be honest with dad. You uh, did you notice uh, anything back there? Did you see anything back there? And he's like, Dad, I was just looking at Jesus. <laughs> and we've got to keep our eyes on the main thing. We cannot be distracted by cultural issues in our church. Amen. And so they're facing a problem here. It's a cultural problem, and it's a threat to the focus that they have. Now, what was the problem characterized by? What kind of problems were they facing here? The first thing that the apostles notice in your notes is there's complaining. There's complaining. In verse 1, it says, a complaint arose. And that word complaint is a Greek word, gongusma. Gongousma. That's a pleasant word, isn't it? You know what it means? Nothing. Nothing not mean there's no etymological origin for that word it's what you call an onomatopoeia you ever heard of that that's a word that sounds like what it's describing like like ruckus okay it just sounds like what it is and a gongusma is griping it's grumbling it's complaining it's murmuring all right some of you had a gongusma with your spouse before you came to church this morning and that's what they're, they're having here. It's, it's just, it starts with angry people talking about things aren't going like we think they ought to be going. And so there's, there's a complaint that arises. Now, what was the source of the complaint? What is the complaint over? Well, it, the problem isn't persecution. It's not sin. It's griping Christians. Now, this is back when Christians used to gripe about stuff. Thankfully, we've solved all that, right? No, we have griping, don't we? When people gripe in the church, what do they gripe about? Do they tend to gripe about doctrine? Not really, not really. Do they gripe about holiness? Not so much. Truth? No. They tend to gripe about people who don't look, think, talk, or sound like we do. That's what we gripe about. And in your notes, what the gripe was, it was over bigotry. They were experiencing bigotry. Verse 1, it says, while the disciples were increasing in number. If you got your Bible in front of you, you can just write in the margin, there goes the neighborhood. People are joining the church, and we're not ready for them in Acts chapter 6. It says, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. All right, in verse 1, already, you've got two distinct groups at odds with one another. The Hellenists... And the Hebrews, okay? Now, they're both Jewish by birth, but they're very, very different culturally, okay? The Hellenists are Jews, but they are far more Greek in their culture. Okay? Uh, they are Hellenized. Hellenization is the rise of Greek culture. Think Helen of Troy. She was Greek, right? So this is a, a, Greek, uh, a Greek culture uh, background for these Jewish people. They were the Jews of the Diaspora or the dispersion. You may remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were conquered by Babylon. They were exiled to Babylon. Years later, they were able to return to their homeland, but not all of them did. Some of them chose to live outside the, the confines of the land of Canaan, and they built a life there, and as Greek culture... Rose up in their part of the world, they began to speak Greek. Native Hebrews spoke Aramaic. These Jews began to think like Greeks. They began to dress like Greeks. Now they were still Jewish. They still worshiped Jehovah, but they worshiped differently from the Jews back in Israel, back in Jerusalem. If you were a native Hebrew, you were very traditional in your worship of Jehovah and your life, your worship centered on the temple. Okay? And that was very easy to do for them because they lived in Jerusalem. The temple's right there. But if you were a Jew and you lived in uh, Tarsus of Cilicia, if you lived in Cyprus, temple's thousands of miles away. And so what does that look like? Your faith becomes a very evolved Judaism. You become very spiritual in how you think about God. And it's almost a New Testament type approach to Jehovah. And they very naturally are drawn to Christianity. And so you've got the native Hebrews who are very traditional and the Hellenized uh, Greek Jews who are not traditional and they are colliding in the church. And there's a problem. And the native Hebrews are in the majority And they're saying, these guys are not like us. They don't talk like us. They don't look like us. They don't think like us. We are going to treat them differently. And because they're in the majority, that's a problem. Because if you recall, they're all sharing everything. And a notion that has transported over from the Old Testament into the church is that you, you must take care of the widows. Okay, widows don't have anybody to take care of them. The church is now uh, separate from Israel. They're their own substructure. Everybody's looking after everybody. They're sharing all things. There's a daily distribution of food and of money. And the Hellenistic widows are being overlooked. Why? Bigotry. Plain and simple. Prejudice. This has been in the church since its very beginning. And it's always been the Achilles heel of the church. All these guys are not from the same zip code, and they're letting their geography, they're letting their regional background and their uh, societal norms that they grew up with dictate how they relate to one another, and it's a problem. It's a problem. And we must not have that type of mindset in the church. Are we supposed to let our, our geographic background dictate how we operate in the church? We're to let the nature of our true homeland dictate how we operate in the church. Amen? What's our true homeland? It's heaven. It's heaven. You remember Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, he told the disciples in Matthew 18, he said, "Uh, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. The kingdom of what? Kingdom of heaven. And he said, you're going to be my apostle, and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What's that mean? That means, Peter, one of these days I'm going to scoot. I'm going to be out of here. You're going to be in charge, and my church is going to need to know how they are to live and to do and to be and to relate to one another. And for you to loose something on earth means you are encouraging an activity or a behavior that is the norm in heaven. If you do it in heaven, you do it here, church. And for you to bind something on earth means you are to disallow or discourage an activity or behavior that does not go on in heaven. If you don't do it in heaven, you don't do it here, church. All right? Is there any bigotry in heaven? No. Is there to be any bigotry in the church of Jesus Christ? No. And yet they're struggling with this. And that's something, because we've been talking about this church as a blueprint, as a model to follow, and yet right here they look like us. They, they got the same baggage we've got, and it's a problem. And that to, to enter into the church and to take your background and your upbringing and to try to mold the church in accordance with how you were raised and, and these non-biblical things is not healthy. Voltaire said that God made man in his own image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. And what you are seeing in the church, in your notes, this next thing, is this. Personal preferences are becoming absolutes. See, these native Hebrews had a very particular way that they thought worship ought to go. And the Greek Jews did not worship in the same way that they did, and they saw them as heretics. And they were making something a biblical issue when it was not a biblical issue. They were taking cultural things, and they were trying to create a standard, an absolute standard for those, and they were treating the Greek Jews as lesser than them. And that does disservice to the faith, because my Bible in Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus. We ought not let our various cultures divide us in the church of Jesus Christ, but that's exactly what's going on. Now, can we, can we do that in the church today? Does that happen today? Do we bring our own ideas in from outside and we try to make them the norm in church? You ever seen that happen in churches? I have. I've been in a lot of different kinds of churches and I've seen a lot of division come about because of peace, people's personal preferences. And they draw a hard line and they say, thus says the Lord. But that's really just what they say. I've been in churches where there was a strong culture, several families who homeschooled their children. Now, I love homeschool families. We have several in our church. And God bless you. I think it's great if you've got that conviction to homeschool your children. I don't happen to think it's for everybody, but if that's what you're doing, that's marvelous. My brothers and sisters, were all homeschooled. But I've been in some churches where the homeschool culture there was uh, very strict, and they said public school is of the devil, and if you send your kids to public school, you're out of God's will. And that was a divisive thing, and it caused damage, in my view. Other people, they draw a hard line on other issues. Um, for example, birth control. Some people think it's wrong. Some people say you ought not use birth control. Vasectomies are bad. That's playing God. And they advocate some kind of a a natural birth control, some kind of a rhythm-based thing. And if you've never used birth control and that's your conviction, you're sitting in a crowd of eight or nine today, God bless you. All right? And maybe you did use birth control in your family and you got your 2.5 and you're just fine with that. Thank you very much. Okay? Is this a biblical issue? No, it's a personal choice. You say, Pastor Scott, do you believe in birth control? Man, I got four kids. I'd rather not play the odds. (laughs) I'm outnumbered as it is, folks. All right? What about uh, Halloween? Can that be divisive in churches? It used to be when I was growing up. All right? That was the devil's holiday. And we don't say Halloween. That's of the devil. What we have is a harvest festival. Okay, it's totally different, uh, except it's not different at all. Now, we've got October Blessed, and I love October Blessed. It's not a moral thing for us. It's just a fun thing and a safety thing uh, to do that, and a ministry thing, of course. But for some churches, it's a moral deal, and they say Harvest Festival, and and uh, but it's just the same. Unless you're in one of those churches, I was in a church one time where you, you came to the Harvest Festival. You couldn't come dressed up as just anything. You had to come as a Bible character, which is fine, except all the costumes Look the same. Every kid's got a robe and sandals and a pillowcase tied to their head. You know, I always thought, it, you know, some of them have accessories. You know, Moses has got the tablets and David's got the sling, but other than that, it's all the same. I always thought it might be funny if you showed up, you know, maybe I'd show up dressed as everybody else and they go, Who are you supposed to be? And I'm like, Duh, Goliath. You know? Actually, one time I got creative, I came with a pillow and a salt shaker on the pillow. I said, hi, I'm Lot. This is my wife. <laughs> Oddly, though, nobody ever came as the Ethiopian eunuch. I don't know what that is. But, you know, Halloween should not be something that divides us. You want to take your kids trick-or-treating, live and let live, I say. Uh, but personal preferences can't become absolutes. What else is out there? How about music? Music. Can music divide people in churches? Speaking as a worship leader, I'd have to say that is one of the most divisive things that I've encountered in churches across the years. I know some guys, man, if it was written after 1980, they don't sing it. And that's pushing it. And I know some young guys, if it was written before 2010, they don't touch it. They don't sing it, right? And we all just need to lighten up. How about medication? If, you're on, uh, if, if, if you go through depression or anxiety or you've got some kind of an emotional disorder, can you take medication? Some people say no. No, that's wrong. If you, if you take something like that consistently, that's inviting demonic control. If it controls emotions and things like that, and they take a hard line. Can we stop adding to Scripture? We need to stop it causes division needlessly. Some people say you can't take out a loan. Some people say you shouldn't date. The Bible advocates courtship, they say. Um, drinking alcohol. Oh, man, that could be divisive in some churches. I grew up Baptist. Now, I don't really drink, okay? I don't, I don't really touch the stuff, but let me just tell you, if you're trying to get teetotaling from Scripture, it ain't in there, all right? You're going to have a hard time exegetically proving that Jesus turned the water into grape juice. I'm just telling, what's my point? The point is, don't come into the church and try to establish something as biblical that's not biblical. We call that departing to the right. There's departing to the left, which is to deny Scripture, and there's departing to the right, which is to say that something is Bible that ain't Bible. And it does a disservice. Now, if there's something in Scripture and you're reading it in context and it's clear, okay, you're bound to it. Are we to get drunk? No, that's a biblical issue. Can't get drunk. Uh, are you, can you abandon your mate? No, that's a biblical issue. Can you sleep with whoever you want? No, sorry. Uh, same-sex marriage, I'm sorry. That's a biblical issue. Uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. All right? Your culture ends where the Bible begins. All right? It has the final word. And we need to recognize that the Bible has the only authority. It's the main thing. And so they are dealing with people departing to the right and causing division. And in your notes, it's a witness-damaging division. Witness-damaging. How so? If you recall in Acts chapter 2, they're sharing everything. They're having their meals together. They're going to the temple together. They're receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. And they have the favor of all the people that's over these meals are tense these meals are awkward now as they're eating they're eating in little cliques little groups and they're casting a wary eye at one another and they're murmuring and they're talking and they're gossiping and they're complaining and worst of all the people are watching them and they're turned off and they're looking at them and they're saying you guys look like us Why would I want to join you? We got Pharisees. We got Sadducees. I'll I'll spare myself the persecution if you don't mind. Jesus told his disciples, by this all men will know you are my disciples, that you have love for one another church. If you don't love each other, you just blew your testimony in a big way. And so it's a witness-damaging testimony. And we talk a lot about this early church, what a model they are. But we're not, we're not looking at this just to see what they went through. We're looking to see how they dealt with it. How did the apostles deal with this? In your notes, first of all, they respond quickly. They respond right away. They don't waste any time. Verse 2, and the 12 summon the full number of disciples. They call a meeting. They get everybody together. How many of them are there? There's thousands of them and they summon them. Have they ever done this before? No. They've been through persecution. They've been through all kinds of stuff. They've never saw the need to call everybody together. Why? Because they're dealing with something that is stage four cancer to a church. Division will stop a church in its tracks, and so they get everybody together, and they say, this ends now. Division is deadly to the mission and the ministry of a church. It will render us impotent and ineffective, and we got to deal with it. And a lot of times in our churches today in America, the division that I have seen is generational. Generations looking at each other and thinking, the other generation's an idiot, a bunch of idiots. you got the the older generation looking at the young ones, thinking you guys don't know what you're doing. The young ones look at the old ones, thinking you guys are lame and old-fashioned, and we need to get over that. You older, more mature, seasoned members of this body, let me, let me just encourage you in something. Do not buy into the stereotypes and make assumptions about the young people coming into our church, the millennials. Do not buy into the stereotypes that they're, uh, that they're whiny, that they're privileged, that they're obsessed with self, that they're all into their social media all the time. Now, some of them may reflect that, but for you to paint them all with a broad brush in that way would be wrong. And my encouragement to you is to get to know them, as I have, to spend some time with them, because I have found them to be very creative, very passionate about the things of God. They think very much outside the box. And if you spend time with them, you can can invest in them, you can benefit them, but you can also learn from them. And that will be a good use of your time toward them. And if you are a younger member of our church, if you're a millennial or around that generation, my word to you is, you don't know everything. Okay, There are people who have gone before you who have done quite well and it would behoove you to get close to them and to soak up some of their wisdom. And just because something was done in the church years before you came on the scene doesn't mean it's a bad idea. And it would be good for us to come together and to learn from one another and to, here's a novel idea, be the body of Christ. Folks, we're in this together, amen? Amen. And so the disciples deal with this quickly. And as they deal with it quickly, they, they, in your notes they stay committed to the word. They stay committed to the main thing. In verse 2 they say it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now that's not the apostles saying uh, we're too good for that. Serving tables is beneath us. I mean we're apostles. <laughs> that's not what they're saying. That's not what this is. No, no. This is about gifting This is about about the collective effectiveness of the church, and it's about keeping the main thing the main thing. I want you to think of the church as a ship. The church is a ship. The framework of the church is doctrine and the Bible, okay? The sail of the church is, is prayer, the wind is the Holy Spirit. The crew is the pastor and the staff and and the elders and all the believers. The cargo is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The rudder and the wheel, that's the dual mission of the church of discipleship and evangelism. Everything else is just the paint and polish on the outside of the boat. And it would make no sense for the captain to spend all of his time dealing with the outside of the boat when his job is to stay on the heading so that we deliver that cargo. And when churches are distracted by subsidiary and uh, uh, side issues, that that ship goes like this. It veers off course. Sometimes it turns completely around and goes the wrong direction. And what the captain needs to do sometimes is to empower the crew to deal with the other issues on the ship so that the ship can stay on course. And that's what the disciples do. And how do they do it? In your notes, they delegate wisely. They say in verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men. Seven men. And we're going to see here the prototypes for what we're later going to call deacons. And a deacon or an elder is really just a servant. It's a servant in the church. But they've got qualifications that are emerging here. It says, select seven men of what? Of good reputation. These guys don't need to be rich. They don't need to be handsome. They don't need to be famous. They need to have a good reputation morally. Okay, why is that important? Because if you hear my name and all you think about is how I treat my spouse and how I cheat on my taxes and how I engage in lewd behavior, it's going to blow the whole testimony of the church. And when you serve in a church, you need to know that there is a mantle on you. There's an expectation from on high that you live an upright life that people can point to and they see Jesus Christ in you. The next qualification is that they be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Why is that important? Because these guys are going to deal with people. And if you're going to deal with people, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. Because if you try to deal with people in your flesh, you are going down. You are going to fail. You're going to act just like, like every joker that comes into church and causes a problem. You're going to need the Spirit, you're going to need love, and you're going to need Wisdom. Because this is a sensitive issue that these seven guys are going to deal with. And they need the sensitivity and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And so they place them in charge. They place them in charge of this task so that they don't get distracted from the main thing. And as they do so, they lead, in your notes, they lead the church to be unified. Look at verse 5. It says, The statement found approval with the whole church congregation. Now there's thousands of them. And everybody agrees. What's that like? Does that happen frequently? (laughs) Not very often. They all approved of what the leaders did. But I tell you the key to that, they must have known that those apostles loved them. They must have known that they cared about them and their future, and their health spiritually, and this is a key to leadership in the church, is that when people are well-loved, they can be well-led. And I say that to every young minister and every young worship leader that I can. I'll keep saying it till they put me in the ground. Your main job as a leader in ministry is not just to know your craft. It's to love those people. Because if people know that you love them, you can lead them. And these people knew that the apostles loved them, and they joined together, and they went about selecting seven guys. And what's the result? In your notes, the needs of the people are met. The needs of the people are met. What's the need? You got widows that are neglected in the daily distribution. What kind of widows? Greek widows, Hellenist widows. Who do they put in charge of tending to that issue in a very strategic way? Seven guys. What do they all have in common? They're all Greek. They're all Hellenists. Look at this. This is interesting to me. Look at the origin of these names. They chose Stephen, a Greek. Philip, a Greek. Prochorus, a Greek. Nicanor, a Greek. Timon, that's that meerkat from the Lion King. Who's next? Pumbaa. No. Parmenus, a Greek, all right, and, and Nicholas. All right, Nicholas, this is interesting. All those other guys are Jews. Uh, they're Jews by birth. They're Greek by culture. Nicholas, it says he's a proselyte. You know what that means? He's not even a Jew by birth. He was converted to Judaism, and then he was converted to Christianity. The guy's not even Jewish by birth. Why is this remarkable? Who's in the majority in the church? It's the native Hebrews. Who chose these seven guys? The people of the church. And that means the majority agreed that they needed to choose these faithful men of Greek heritage to step in and do what needed to be done. What unity. This is how you deal with an issue. And in verse 6, it says, And these they brought before the apostles who have the final word, and after praying, they lay hands on them. And what is the next result? In your notes, more people come to Christ. More people get saved because of how they dealt with this wisely and biblically. It says in verse 7, The word of God kept on spreading. That's the focus. And the result of the word of God spreading says, it says the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Does that phrase, the the disciples increasing, does that sound familiar? That's how we started this passage. In verse one, it says, and while the disciples increased, a complaint arose, then they deal with the complaint wisely and biblically. And what's the result? The number of disciples increase. This is the cycle of a healthy church. Healthy churches have problems. That's not bad. It's how they deal with the problems. Every church has problems, okay? There's no perfect church. You ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll just screw it up. (laughs) All right? But you deal with it as the Lord wants you to, and that church is going to grow. And on and on the cycle goes. And it says this, The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And then what? A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. In your notes, a result that happens is strongholds of tradition crumble inside the church and now outside the church. Do you see what's going on? The innate Judaistic biases within the church are dealt with. And as a result, now strongholds of old covenant era thought are being demolished outside the church as Jewish priests (laughs) are coming to Christ and they're getting saved, Jewish priests. That's amazing to me. And that tells me that when we, as a church, when we deal with our stuff, we become purified. And our witness becomes strong. And we're able to be effective. And the world can be, in a more effective way, convicted by the Holy Spirit working through us because we have surrendered our weak areas to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? Now, what I notice about these seven guys... They are selected to be servants. Servanthood is not always the most glamorous job, right? To be a servant, to serve in the church and all these different areas may not seem as glamorous as being on a platform and preaching the word or leading worship or something like that. But it's equally important because it serves the same exact agenda of keeping the main thing the main thing and that ship keeps moving forward forward. All right, when we were in uh, Spain, our first uh, full day there, we had a festival that night. And at that festival, we did a lot of activities and things. People came out and they heard the gospel. 42 people got saved on the first day. Praise the Lord. Now, how many of our team had shared the gospel publicly that night? Zero. We weren't the ones sharing the gospel. It was Manny Fernandez Jr. from World Link, our partner. It was the Spanish students from the seminary in Madrid. There was a language barrier. They were the ones sharing the gospel, and people came to Christ. And to be honest with you, we rejoiced that people came to Christ, but we were a little down because we didn't have a more direct involvement in that, in, at least we thought we came prepared. We came prepared to share our testimonies, to share the gospel, but we were busy because we were running tables, we were doing line dancing, we were doing face painting, we were running games and and crafts and all of those things. We thought we didn't get to share the gospel. And the next morning Manny Fernandez comes up. He says, "Listen, I, I don't want you guys to be discouraged that you didn't share last night because you did something vital. Because you did your jobs. We had a festival. And because we had a festival, people came. And if people had not come, they wouldn't have heard the gospel. But because you did your job, they came out, and now 42 people are going to heaven. And that breathed wind into our sails, and we began to see our part in God's plan. But you know what God did? This is exciting. Throughout the week, in our service, God began to open up opportunities for us to share. And one night, Manny comes to me and he says, hey, do you have somebody on your team that can share a testimony in just a couple of minutes? I can translate for him. I said, absolutely. And God gave me the name, Nina Memes. If you know Nina, she was on our trip. I went to her, I said, Nina, can you share your testimony without even blinking? She said, yes. And she got up there and she shared her testimony and Manny translated and a whole mess of Spaniards got saved. Yeah. And the next night, one of our girls, Ashley Knapper, I'm, I'm painting faces. Ashley runs up. She says, Pastor Scott, I about messed this kid's face up. She said, I'm so excited. I just led somebody to Christ. It's the first time I've ever led somebody to Christ. And I knew that she spoke a little Spanish. I said, did you lead him in Spanish? She goes, no, he spoke French. <laughs> but she was able to find some common English and she used one of those bracelets with the multiple colors on it. She gave the gospel, the guy got saved. And then Lidio Banana If you know Lydio, he heads up our First Impression ministry. He was our clown, one of our clowns. He's dressed up as a clown, got his face all painted. He's just running around being goofy. He runs into two Irish guys and leads them both to Jesus. And God was good. And he allowed us to start by serving, and then he opened up a platform You begin by serving. If you're not willing to serve God, don't expect the platform to come because he wants to see what you're faithful in. And these seven guys started as servants, but you know what's going to happen at the end of this chapter and into the next chapter? You're going to hear about it next week. A young man's going to step up, and he's going to begin to preach, and he's going to be bold, and he's going to preach with a fervor. And he's going to say something that those native Hebrews would never have said. He's going to say that God does not dwell in a temple made with human hands. And it's going to blow people's minds. And it's going to transform the way ministry is done. His name, Stephen. First name mentioned among these seven. And then in chapter 8, you're going to see another guy. He's going to go down to Samaria, and he's going to take the gospel, not just to the native Hebrews, not just to the Hellenistic Jews, but to the ones that the Jews call half-breeds, the Samaritans. And he's going to preach the gospel, and he's going to kick open the cultural door, and that's going to begin a trend in the church whereby all Gentiles around the world will have access to the gospel, and aren't you guys glad? That guy's name? Philip the number two name here in verse five. These guys were servants first. And church, when you serve selflessly, God opens opportunities up, but he also, through you in your notes, allows the church to remain focused on the main thing. How can you help keep this ship on its heading? Well, off the top of my head, I'm the life group's pastor here at Shelter Cove. We have a big need. I can't lead every life group. We got a bunch of wonderful leaders. Not enough. There are hundreds of people that need to be in a life group, that want to be in a life group. But we need more facilitators. We need more hosts. And I'm here to tell you with confidence, whatever excuse just popped into your brain, It may be that the Lord wants to demolish that excuse today. And there's a table right out here, a kiosk, that says life groups. You come out there, we'll talk to you, and we'll give you a practical way for you to plug in and help keep this great ship moving forward to deliver the precious cargo that it holds. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being your church God, forgive us for coming in and trying to make it something that we want it to be instead of your plan, God. Forgive us for charting a course that's not of you. Keep us on the right heading, God, and I pray for every person in this room that they would see themselves as you have designed them, equipped them, open up uh, their eyes to where you want them to serve in your body and how to keep the main thing the main thing so that the word of Jesus Christ can advance and people can enter the kingdom and be, a, be become a part of this crew. And we pray your blessing upon everyone here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great weekend.
1: shelter cove my name is anthony it is a great pleasure to have you here this weekend with us at church if you're excited go whoop whoop i hope you did it or else i look like a fool up here on the screen next weekend we are celebrating baptisms you can sign up for baptism by going to sheltercovelive.com slash baptism fill out that form and we will get you dunked in the water for jesus it's going to be a good great fantastic fun time you could also fill out a cove card that's sitting right in front of you if you are in the worship center if you're not in the worship center get your way in there because service is about to start and you don't want to miss a single second it's it's very value, valuable time valuable time gonna be good gonna be nice gonna be snappy Also coming up at the end of the month, July 29th and 30th, we are going to have family dedication. And you can still sign up and dedicate you, your family, your child slash children unto the Lord. ShelterCoveLive.com slash dedication. Fill out that form once again and get signed up. Do it. Sunday night, August 6th at 6 p.m. We are going to have a free showing of the movie Case for Christ. Yeah, you heard me right. It's a free showing of the film. It's going to be right here in the worship center. And we are going to have none other than Lee Strobel skyping in a live Q&A. He's the author of the book that the movie's based on. So get your tickets for free at sheltercovelive.com. And we're going to have Mark Middleburg also present, a good friend of Lee Strobel's. They just wrote a new book together, and he's a great apologist. So come on out August 6th, 6 p.m., Sunday night. Don't delay. YAH! Also, this Sunday night is our Life Group Leader Interest Meeting. If you've ever wondered, hey, what does it take to be a leader? I don't really have my doctorate in theological studies. How could I possibly lead someone? It's easy. It's simple. It's facilitating conversation. It's caring.